As a young man, George Shaw flew from city to city for two years, cassette recorder in hand, with a question he posed to each music professional he interviewed. How can music, and in particular improvisation, best be taught? After studying their answers and writing a dissertation on this subject, Dr. Shaw applied what he learned to teaching music and improvisation at the college level. But that's only part of the story and a fraction of what George has learned along the way. We delve deeper into his experience on today's Nimble Photographer podcast. Thanks for joining us. As a musician, how do you feel about higher education? What are the, the benefits that you got for spending that time in school? Not only later on when you were teaching, but even before that. I grew up in a small town in Alabama. And education, the time I was growing up, was considered a way to elevate and go through the, the food chain, if you will, climb the food chain. And so education started out as just a, a means of bettering my condition, if you would. By the time I figured out the complications involved and how difficult it was, it was too late. <laughs> I was I was already into by the time I figured I didn't even know what a PhD was, you know, when it was first explained to me. I just had teachers, high school teachers, you know, if you if you go get a PhD, that that'll be really good. You know, you you can probably get a really good job, <laughs> you know, especially in education. And there's all this um, need for black PhDs in uh, at the time, what was uh, what became historically black colleges? That was a big thing. So you know, I'm I'm, I'm talking late '60s, early '70s uh, when I'm when I'm getting out of high school, getting ready to go to college. So it started out as that, just a motive, a point of motivation, not something that I really wanted to do. I was just told to do it. Everything that my teachers had told me to do was working out pretty good. <laughs> so I said, okay. I'm just going to run with this thing, right? Yeah. If that'll help, I'll try that. I, and I totally get that because it's interesting. I, I went through a, a similar thing as a writer. And I went through a period where I go, you know what? I don't need a formal education to be a writer. And that lasted about two years. And then I went back to school and you know finished my degree and was really glad I did. Yeah. Now, during that process, though, I actually became a better writer. I, I did learn Absolutely. things. How did studying music uh, for those years help you as a musician? Let me tell you a, a little story that might kind of bring it into focus. Um, I graduate from undergraduate school and uh, was offered a job to teach public school in Baltimore, Maryland, which I turned down. Um, for whatever reason, I turned that job down. I go back to my little town in Alabama, and I had a teacher at the time who uh, taught me composition and music theory. And he said to me, well, if you want to get, you, you're pretty good, but if you really want to learn composition, take this book of Beethoven piano sonatas and this black felt pen and this empty tablet of music paper, and I want you to copy this book Note for note, but you can't make, you got to go slow because if you make mistakes, you turn that page out and you start over. So I went home, I'm fresh out of college. I would get up every morning, practice my trumpet, sit down at the table and start copying these 
they told the piano synopsis. Well, of course, my mom and dad didn't think this was a very good idea. No job. <laughs> I'm sitting there copying Beethoven piano sonatas and playing the trumpet. So my mom says, you know, we, we, we got to do something. This is not working. So they sent me, she came home, basically handed me a plane ticket and $40 and said, you're moving to Detroit, Michigan to go live with your aunt because she can help you get a job. Now, they didn't know that. They sent me right to the heart of Motown. I mean, this Motown, Barry Gordy, the Temptations. The I mean, that's where they sent me to better myself. I love it. Right into you know? the candy shop, right? Yeah, right. And so, so I go there, and my aunt helps me get a job, of which I won't tell you the story of how I got fired because that's that's a too long of a story. But she gets me this job, and and then says, you know, that's not going to work. So. My first night in, well, actually, my first night in Detroit, my uncle, who was a big party guy, takes me to a club, introduces me to everybody. I sit in and I get hired to play in this band. My very first night in Detroit. So now it's on. I go from <laughs> sitting in Alabama copying Beethoven piano scores to playing in a band in Detroit. Now, Wayne State's in Detroit. So I, I you know, I still got this thing running in the background like, well, you know, the, that Ph.D. thing, you know, your teacher said, OK, so just go take some classes at Wayne State. So I would play in this band at night, go to Wayne State, take classes for masters. And I taught uh, school part time. Now, really, I'm in Detroit. I'm playing in this band. And so while I'm taking classes at Wayne, one of the professors at Wayne says, you know, if you play a string instrument, and I did play bass. I'm a bass player, too. I played electric bass and had played string bass as an undergraduate. He said, if, if you switch over to the string program, you know, I, I wasn't very discriminating. I just needed scholarships and the degree. I mean, it wasn't a, about what I was, because I'm playing, I'm doing the music I want to do. I'm doing R&B and jazz. Exactly. The school play was a whole separate deal. Like, okay, so if you switch over the strings and will agree to teach strings in the inner city, we'll pay off your student loans and you can get a degree in string pedagogy. That's how I ended up getting a master's degree. So my master's was actually in uh, string uh, pedagogy, teaching strings. And I taught strings in the public schools in Detroit. It wasn't by design. It was whoever came up with the idea that would keep me going forward if the idea was presented in a way that I thought was uh, profitable, I would jump. You know, I love this because really what your eye is on is keep moving the direction that you want to go. Right. And you're not really set on how that happens. And so that leaves you with a very open mind in terms of opportunities that come along. Because if you were just focused on saying, I'm going to do it just this way, then you might not even consider these other options, right? Absolutely. Somebody would say, you want to try this? And I'd go, yeah, that sounds good. H how much do I get to do that? Funny, there's a movie, and I can't remember the name of the movie right now, George, but the, the idea of the movie was just say yes. Just say yes. And, <laughs> and, 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 they, and, you know, so at first the guy's going, no way. And they said, no, you have to say yes to everything that comes along for the next 30 days or whatever. And he goes, okay, I'll do right. it. And so he starts doing this, and, and you're just thinking that this is just going to be a disaster, right? Mm -hmm. But oh, actually, yeah. he he really starts to move forward at, at an accelerated speed just by 
suddenly changing his frame of mind to being open to opportunity, even if he didn't completely understand it. That's right. And the better you get at going for the for the things that you perceive as going in the good direction, the right direction. And, you know, that's that becomes a, a judgment call developing a feel for it. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you do that. You know, some people say, you know, they listen to their little voice or or they get a gut feeling or they just do a pros and cons list. What? How do you determine what's a, a good decision or not when it comes to these things that, you know, they have implications for your career and your life moving forward? I did know this. It was fun. Music was always fun. Uh, e- even back to when I first learned how to play when I first started playing. And every time somebody would put me in a situation where it, yeah, that's going to be fun. Now, when it started to be fun and I started to make money, it's like, yeah, yeah, this, this, this is really fun. Not that the money mattered because the money didn't matter. I would have done it anyway in a system that requires you, you to be able to support yourself on some level, you, you have to figure out how to balance the, the whole artistic, you know, you, you can sit in, in, in a room by yourself and do what you do and have as much fun, you know, and a lot of times, and a lot of times I do, <laughs> but, but there are times you got to come out and go, okay, how, how are we going to make this be- be practical. <laughs> right. So, you know, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is, did you ever take an opportunity that you viewed as not fun, but it, it felt like it, it was going to help you in the long run? Has that, yeah. Have you ever been in that situation? Yeah. Let, let me give you a, another story that you might be able to, to decipher something out of. I'm in Oklahoma. Now, keep in mind, I leave Detroit, moved to Oklahoma. Uh, Norman, Oklahoma, which is, you know where Norman, Oklahoma is. I do. Midwest. And I, I get I get this job playing bass in a country western band. I, I knew about country western music because that would play where I was from in the deep south. But I never played in a country western band. And I can't say I was that in love with the music, but I really needed the job. And so I took this job. I'm, I'm playing in this band, making enough money for us to survive because by this time I was with my wife and you know she would she did a good job of keeping track of how much money I didn't have (laughs) so so I go home one night after playing this job and I'm on this job not having a lot of fun and we're playing some Willie Nelson song or something or Chuck whatever and I fall asleep right in the middle of the song while I'm playing (laughs) <laughs> and and the guy that I worked for, his name was Jess Eichert, just such a nice man. Jess Eichert, he wakes, wakes me up and he says, George, are you okay? And I, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, Jess, I'm fine. So I get home, I walk in the house, I tell my wife, I said, you know, I said, I really, really, really can't keep doing this to Jess. He's a nice guy. And I, I got to find something else to do. And she's half asleep. It's one or two o'clock in the morning. She wakes up and she says, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to quit. She says, you can't afford to quit. <laughs> without missing a beat then it hit me wow she's right <laughs> so you gotta find something else first you gotta find something else before you quit so i 
I changed my attitude. I bought a cowboy hat. I bought boots, the whole thing. I went back and I started having fun. <laughs> and I played that gig for another, oh, couple of years. I was playing that gig when we left Oklahoma to move to California. I hated to leave that gig. That was a good gig. That is <laughs> interesting. <it> <laughs> So you know, you never thought you'd be in a country western band, and and I know what you look like, and I I would never guess that you would have been either. But nah. <laughs> but now, did you learn something from from musically from jumping into a world that you never planned on going into? Oh, absolutely! It it really taught me that music is music. I mean, the the the, the story that's told in anybody's music is the story. So if once you get past how it sounds, <laughs> <laughs> once you get past, if you can get past how it sounds, it, it, you know, because a lot of the prejudice that someone deals with in art, whether it's visual art or whatever, is just because they're turned off by what they see or hear. But there's a story, and if you can become one with the story, you can you can gain pleasure. That was what I learned. It, there's something to be gained, and and you will take that to your next situation. That is a that is a big time lesson. Whew, that was one of the best experiences that I had. Yeah, isn't that something? You, and you never would have guessed. Never would have guessed. Nah, nah. Yeah. No. Hey, I want to I want to ask you, you know, I like this this theme of education as it weaves in and out of your career. So, you had one of the most alluring PhD thesis I think I've ever <laughs> I've ever heard of. And, uh, all right. And Oh man, and, that's so funny. Yeah. And so <laughs> Uh, first, tell us uh, in a nutshell what it was, and then we'll get into a couple uh, details okay. about it. Okay, about how it came about. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, I want to hear so how. So what it, came it was about. was it was it was an idea that begs to answer a question. Then the question is, can jazz improvisation be taught, or is it something that you just either can do or? You can't. That, that whole environment versus hereditary question that's been around for forever. That's a great question. I, I want to know the answer myself. You know, that, which is that whole, is creativity born, inborn, or is it something that you pick up just because you happen to drink the water? Take that question and then couple it with, well, if it, if it can be taught and you know how to do it, how would you teach it? So that's that's what the the dissertation addresses. If you can talk to enough people who are masters in the craft, can you find enough commonalities that you can develop a curriculum that makes sense from the professional viewpoint? Okay, so in 1976, the bicentennial year, every state was invited to Washington, D.C. to bring one music group and play at the White House as a representative of the state. Well, the, the group that was invited from Oklahoma was from the University of Oklahoma. The group was 50 trombone players and a rhythm section. I was the bass player that played for the 50 trombone players and happened to be the only black person in the group. So everywhere we played, I kind of stood out. And this guy was on the plane next to me. I didn't even know who he was. He just said, 
young man, what do you do? And I said, oh, I put the bass wall. I'm working on my PhD. Well, what are you going to do for a dissertation? That was the conversation. He handed me a business card and said, when you get back to the university, call me. I didn't even look at the card. I just stuck it in my pocket. I get home. My wife finds the card and says, where did you get this? Well, there was this guy on the plane. He gave it to me. And she goes, gets a check stub, looks at it, and says, because she worked at the university in one of the offices, this is the guy that signs my check. I said, oh, okay. What did he ask? And I told her the story. So she said, okay, let's write this up, and you go see him. Rest is history. Wow. They gave me like a $50,000 grant to just travel and talk. Oh, my gosh. So I went from nothing to now I got this money. Now, the problem, I had a problem, though. I didn't know anybody to go talk to. <laughs> right. That was a problem. <laughs> so anyway. It's, it's sort of like me doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Okay, but but you did end up talking, now, now correct me if I'm wrong here, to some gentleman named B.B. Uh, King, uh, another gentleman oh, yeah. named Herbie Hancock, right? Oh, they, absolutely, absolutely. Right. So All of those people, yeah. Now, how did you go from not knowing who to talk to to interviewing B.B. King, for example. Okay, okay, okay. So so now I, I got to figure out how to get to people. I got a tape recorder. I got plane tickets. I got a per diem, and I don't know anybody. So there's this other graduate student who was older than I was. Because keep in mind, I'm like 25, 26 years old. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I've talked myself into this, but I don't know what how to do it. So I go to this older gentleman who was also in school, who was teaching at a university. And, and I told him my story and he said, well, the first thing you need to do is you need to go to the university of Indiana and go visit Dave Baker. I said, well, I don't know him. Now Dave Baker happened to be the premier jazz teacher in the world at the time and had written some of the first books on jazz improvisation. He said, you need to go talk to him. And I know Dave because my wife and Dave grew up together. So he calls Dave Baker. Dave Baker says, sure, I'll talk to him. Send him up here. I'll put him in the dorm for two weeks, and he can shadow me for two weeks. So that's where I started. And Dave Baker said, you need to go see a guy named Jamie Abersole. If you look this guy up, you'll see that he's the guy who did all the play-along records. And Dave had taught him. I get to Jamie, and I'm going to only take you through two more sequences, and then the whole thing explodes. Jamie says, well, go to... Wichita Jazz Festival. Go to the Wichita Jazz Festival because there'll be a lot of people. Chick Corea is going to be there. All these people are going to be there. Keith Jarrett, you can maybe, maybe they'll give you an interview. I get to Wichita Jazz Festival. I rent a car. I have no ticket. I drive to the Jazz Festival. I'm standing out front. A taxi pulls up. A guy gets out. Now, I knew who it was. It was Joe Henderson, who's a famous saxophone player because I'd seen this picture on album cover. He walks straight over to me out of the cab and he says, hey, man, do you have five dollars? I said, yeah. He said, give it to that taxi driver. You got a ticket? I said, no. He said, give it to that taxi driver. Grab my horn and come go with me. So I go from no ticket, don't know anybody. To I'm now Joe Henderson's roadie and I'm backstage. Oh, gosh. Literally, <laughs> that's how it happened. That's literally how it happened. 
So, I mean, like, you know, people talk about right place, right time. Yeah. And, yeah, I guess there's something to that. <laughs> but all I know is I happen to be standing there. I happen to recognize Joe, and I happen to have side towels. <laughs> you know? That is so, something. And so Joe gets me backstage, and then I meet a guy named Mill Hinton, who's a famous bass player. I asked him to help carry his amplifier. He says, I'm a nice guy. When you come to New York, you can stay at my house. So I go from that to I'm at Milt's in his basement talking to Count Basie. And next thing I know, I'm at Carnegie Hall with Sarah Vaughn, Clark Terry, Dizzy Gillespie. All this happens within a matter of weeks. Wow. Literally weeks. It was, It scared me to death. But you just kept going, right? You just yeah. keep going, right? Right. But I, and I never told anybody that I didn't know what I was doing. You know, if you think about it, as, if, as, a, as a, an experienced interviewer, as you know, you know, you'd have everything all planned out. You know uh, what the theme is going to be. You know, the, you have a pattern that you're going to follow. Well, one of the first things I figured out out about jazz guys is that they 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 want to talk and then some, when they talk to you, if they go down a road that you don't necessarily need, you just got to kind of go there until you can get what you need. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know. So anyway, it, it was it was it was fun, um, and I was able to turn that uh, into a degree. You know, going back to our original thesis, after talking to these guys and and gals, because you, you mentioned Sarah Vaughn and so forth, also. Uh, what's your take on this? Is this something that you're born with? Is this something that you can learn, or is it a little bit of each? It's a little bit of each, but a commonality. Everybody I talked to grew up, and there was music going all the time. They had some reference to music from an early age. That makes sense. There were people in the house singing. There were people playing music. The guy down the street played piano. You uh, On the way to school, they'd hear some guy playing saxophone. There was music all around them. And some of them had older siblings who were involved. Stuff that was just going on in their environment. So now, okay, now to put a bow on this, my question to you is, what is the key advice that you give to those young artists as they're looking ahead you know, to their future? You really, really have to be serious about your craft. That's the first thing. No, no matter what you're trying to do, no matter what you do, you can't be sloppy with your craft. You, you, that, that's the thing that you've got to make sure that if something goes wrong in the presentation, it's not your fault. And if you, if you play guitar and you're, you're the guitar player, Make sure you can do every, you can deliver everything that you're called to deliver. And if you can't take note of what went wrong and don't ever let that happen again. <laughs> no, no, I mean, that's all you can do because things will go wrong and you will be in situations where you're over your head, but you won't know you're over your head until you're over your head. That's right. And what, and when you're there, it's like, okay, I've got to survive this, but here's the issue. I've got to go fix this issue because that's not going to happen. I'm not going to be in a situation where I can't deliver. So that's the diligent, deliberate study of the craft. The other thing I would say to students 
even if you're not looking for opportunities, you really have to learn to recognize them because they'll find you. Yep. They'll find you. That's the whole thing about being open that you were, I mean, that's a theme through this whole conversation. I wish I could also say that I've had people ask me, well, how did you plan that? And how did you plan that? Well, you can tell from the little stories that I tell you, it, I didn't, I didn't plan <laughs> it. I, I, I didn't plan it. But once it started going, I didn't stop it from happening. Because, it, you know, it's kind of frightening to figure out, oh, wow, now all of a sudden you're in the middle of something that you now have to, you got to make this work. You, you're here now. A big thanks to George for joining us this week. You can learn more about George Shaw by visiting his site, www.georgeshaw.com. I'll be back next time with another artist and the thoughts behind their creations. Until then, this is Derek Story, the nimble photographer, wishing you great success in all your endeavors. This podcast is made possible by select members of Patreon. You can learn more and pledge your support for the digital story and the nimble photographer by visiting www.patreon.com slash the digital story.